Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! Welcome, Job Shop enthusiasts, to another nail-biting episode of the Job Shop Show. Your host, Jay Jacobs, here. Today, we will be talking about 3D printing. We are lucky to have with us a 3D printing veteran and pioneer, Kevin Dyer. Kevin and I have known each other for over 30 years. In 1989, I wrote up a business plan and purchased for Santon Engineering a stereolithography SLA 250 from Kevin. Kevin was selling for 3D systems and they made the first 3D printer that was commercially available. Eventually, Kevin decided to get in the business of making 3D printed parts for others and started a shop, Interpro, in 1996. I think they're one of the oldest 3D printing companies still around and they are located in Connecticut. Kevin has a ton of background on 3D printing and has lived through all of the changes over the years. So I'm super excited to chat with him and give you a history of 3D printing that you probably can't get anywhere else. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Kevin. Thank you, Jay. Good morning. Happy to be great. here. Yeah, great to have you here. And we are talking in April of 2020. It's the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. We hear a lot about how 3D printing's been mobilized to make desperately needed parts. And you and Interpro participated in one story that was captured on TV where you printed a ventilator adapter that allows one ventilator to support several patients. How'd this come about? Uh, I was uh, reading the New York Times about three weeks ago now. And uh, mm -hmm. there was a, uh, an article by a doctor at, uh, in New York City whose article is entitled, The Sky is Falling. And uh, reading it, uh, it was, uh, she was 
she was describing the desperate circumstances and, and what was going to become more desperate. And uh, she appealed to people to do whatever they could to help. And I know that one of the things that she was uh, talking about, of course, specifically was the ventilator capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think somewhere I'd, I'd heard and read that uh, physicians were cobbling together extensions on ventilators to support more than one person with one ventilator. So mm-hmm. it seemed that that was an obvious thing that if it was designed uh, to be able to be 3D printed uh, with multiple ports, that that would be something that we could do that might be of help. Mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, I, I contacted the local SolidWorks users group and I asked them to put out a, an email to their group to, uh, to request people who might be able to design such a, mm-hmm. a device. And um, then word traveled and uh, Bob Conley, who's on that email uh, trail, uh, stepped right up. And uh, I think the next day he sent an email saying that he had two designs for a manifold, basically an adapter that mm-hmm. would, uh, in his first design, take, uh, take one uh, outlet and feed it to three or four. He, he did two di- different designs. He has so, his own uh, design company? I've known Bob for a lot of years, Interactive CAD Solutions in Lebanon, Lebanon, Connecticut. And okay. uh, Bob, Bob's a, a senior level designer. He has also a 3D scanning capability in his house hmm. where he works. Okay. So, um, um, so um, I, got, um, I got in touch with Bob when he sent me the email and uh, we started to talk about how we do this. And the first question was, well, what's, uh, what's the diameter? What's the right diameter for, for that? entrance and, and exit port. So mm-hmm. through some other friends, I was able to get a ventilator tube from a anesthesiologist. I met Bob at a Dunkin' Donuts. He took it home. He measured it up with his scanner and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a matter of about an hour or so had uh, things dialed in as far as the, the port diameters, sent us the file and uh, we, we started printing them on RSLA. And uh, then um, after, after the first uh, launch on SLA, we also scheduled to get it on the HP printer. So the next day, um, I've lost track of all the days, but uh, the next day we had that um, in hand. And mm-hmm. uh, when, I had, um, after, when I was also talking uh, to the CAD user uh, community about how can we work together to get a design, the other question was, well, who do we take this to? Uh, who, do we, mm. who do we talk to to see if this is possibly going to be helpful? So through right. some other friends, um, some emails were sent and I was contacted back by uh, um, a doctor at uh, Manchester Hospital in Connecticut. And he said he was interested and, and wanted to, to have it when we printed it. So I think it was the following morning, Bob and I met him at the hospital and um, he took these right in and fitted them to his ventilator. Um, got some very positive first fit check results, had some right. ideas for how to optimize the design. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bob went right back home, uh, did some more modification on it, made it more compact to fit mm-hmm. into the space that was available. And uh, again, sent us a file. We printed it that night. And I think it was the following, that was, I think, a Saturday or Sunday morning then that we went back and we had the, uh, the second round of tests. And uh, if um, there's pictures now on the internet of, of that ventilator assembly that he put together where he, uh, he fit uh, seven balloons, test balloons to this uh, hmm. network that okay. was created with the, with the help of the adapter. So. That's an amazing story. And it happened so quickly. 
that's the power of 3D printing and yeah. scanning and, and 3D CAD and, and people just coming together. I guess. It, it was amazing because while we were doing that, I mean, there were so many other people that responded back to that mm -hmm. mailing by Ed Poole's SolidWorks users group here in Connecticut. People who wanted to get involved, they had CNC capability, they had injection mold capability, uh, um, flow analysis capability. So many people mm -hmm. wanted to get involved. And, and it was, um, you know, it's been a nice experience from that point of view because, uh, I mean, everybody wants to do something in this, in this uh, situation and to be able to have something that maybe was going to be of value was, was a very, very nice thing for all of us involved in that. Well, thanks for taking the initiative there, Kevin, and getting it out there and giving the doctors a solution. What's really cool, Jay, is that it's been downloaded across the world. Bob Conley has a, a tracker on his website where the, well, mm -hmm. that was the other thing. We wanted to make sure it was available everywhere. So we put mm -hmm. it on uh, Bob's website. We have it on ours too. But Bob's tracking the downloads and it's been downloaded in, in over a hundred countries and over a thousand wow. downloads. Yeah. Zimbabwe, uh, all over, all over the world. It's been amazing. Wow. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. You mentioned the SolidWorks users group and I've been working with the SolidWorks users group for a long time, actually started with CAD key user groups and pro engineer user groups, but the SolidWorks user groups of all the CAD communities has just taken off and maybe you could share what the SolidWorks user group is from your experience and why you think that they are such a tight community and taken off so much? Well, I think uh, that's a great question. So I'm not a CAD person myself. I never learned CAD and I'm not an engineer by background, but by uh, it's amazing when I go to the meetings, the, the camaraderie and the enthusiasm mm -hmm. and the, the real uh, passion, the passion that uh, <laughs> engineers and designers have for, for what they do. And especially with the, the continuing I mean, it's what, been 20 years at least of SolidWorks being around. The continuing growth in its capability that every year there's like there's new capability and you see the passion and the excitement in, in how they talk and, and how they react mm -hmm. to it. And it's been, uh, you know, you and I have the background that when we first started back in the day when 3D printing was just getting going, uh, I think Ares was the CAD package that had an SD. It was the only CAD package, wasn't it? The only CAD package. So, and, it, uh, so just for the listener, that's Aries A R I E S Technologies. They were in Lowell, Massachusetts, and they used 3D solids. I think Boolean operations to make the shapes. If I'm, if I remember correctly. So you're right. That was the only one at the time, and uh, yeah. so. Uh, my excitement at the time was that we had this incredible stereolithography capability and I've, I've become a salesperson for it, but like, who could use it? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And, and shapes that were more amorphous, curvy, what you would think of injection molded were just not able to be modeled to be made on the stereolithography machines. Yeah. So, and, and that, I was going to ask you uh, and start talking way back because again, we, we may have even have met in 1988 when you first started and we, Santon was 
talking about getting a printer in-house, but I'd forgotten about the, the CAD system part of that. That the tools have evolved, the certainly 3D printing's evolved, but the tools to support it have evolved too. Yeah. Yeah. I remember as a salesperson very early on, uh, it, it was easy, easy to get people to talk to you about stereolithography. Um, when I first started the, the job, there was stacks of hundreds of lead cards where people wanted to know more about it. So mm -hmm. uh, instantly the conversation becomes like dead ended because, well, there's, there's no way to actually get data into the machine. So I can remember calling McDonnell Douglas, I think, uh, with, I forget the name of that cat package at the time, but it was like, you know, they were, were about to release it, about to release it. So, and that was a big one when they finally, uh, whatever that cat package. Was that called, Unigraphics? I think it was Unigraphics. I think that yeah. was it. Yeah. Because that was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember the first part Santon printed was for a company, a connector company called Amphenol, I believe. And connectors were actually a great fit because they were not easily made by a model maker. You couldn't really CNC machine it. And to prototype a connector before that, you had to actually make the injection mold, which cost a lot of money. But at the same time, it fit the CAD technology that was available because it was a lot of rectilinear shapes that were put together to make a connector. Uh, I, I'm really curious to say, I, I've never really uh, known how you and, and Drew and the company uh, got keyed into stereolithography. I mean, you were amongst the very first. And for a company of that size to to make such a such an investment was was very uh, that was a big decision that was a very expensive machine i i'll pat myself on the back and say i was a good salesman and my sale was to drew drew santon and getting him to spend a lot of money because what was it about 250,000 and then how much more money in the ancillary equipment to support it yeah so the the investment, and this was back in 89, so the investment was pretty significant. It wasn't a technology that was really proven, but we just had the inkling that it was the right direction to go. And Santon Engineering was a classical model shop. They had model makers who would use wood and metal and you name it to create both functional and appearance models for companies designing new products. And in particular, Santin focused on industrial design firms. So we, we had a breadth of business across different industries. Um, in answer to your question, the, it really was a, a leap of faith on, on Drew's part and Part of it though was the first mover and I drew him a map. I think we were the 10th sterolithography service bureau in the country. And I drew a map and I showed the nearest one was down in New Jersey, laser prototypes. And said, we, we can own New England in this technology. Mm -hmm. And the part of the pitch, if I remember correctly, was that you needed somebody to make sample parts for 
your prospects. They had to try the technology out before they would invest. And I thought that this was a great collaboration that by buying the machine, you would actually become a salesperson for us. And your goal was that people would want to buy so many parts that they would want to buy their own, their own printer, of course. Pure and simple. Yeah. 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 I remember the, it it did. It, it was it really was a great great collaboration and, and teamwork there. Yeah. Uh and I remember I think Johnson and Johnson was one of the first local customers. Who were some of the other first adopters of sterilithography for you? Um there was Tupperware in uh, I think Smithfield, Rhode Island at the time. Mm-hmm. Um and that maybe that was a couple years after you got yours. Uh Pitney Bowes was the first company I sold to. That was in December mm-hmm. of eighty eight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. In Shelton, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. The materials have evolved quite a bit too, because the first material that was printed was a cyanoacrylate. Essentially think of super glue. And if you looked at these models wrong, they would break. <laughs> or at least warp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. yeah they, the, didn't uh, they didn't they smell didn't smell good. And we use the term 3D printing now, but back then it was just called a sterilithography model. And the SLA, what's SLA stand for? Stereolithography apparatus. Yeah. And the 250, that was the, was that the first printer or first SLA machine? SLA1 was the first. Okay. And then they they renamed it? Yeah. I think 87 was when the first machines went out. I think, I think Pratt and Whitney was amongst the first to get a machine. And uh, that's right. There was a medical company in Chicago. I don't remember their name. Was that Baxter? Baxter, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, well, it's been quite a journey since then. The, how did you see it evolve when you were working for 3D systems? Was there, did it sort of hockey stick in, or was it a tough sell? Just share maybe some of the, the parts of selling them, the, printers or the the SLA machines? Well, um, it was frustrating and it was really a challenge. And um, I uh, I had many a conversation with my wife as to whether or not this was going to be a future worth pursuing. But I, uh, I, I guess I had a passion for it. And I saw how it was being used at places like Pratt and, mm-hmm. uh, and your company and others. And I, I just felt like this is definitely, definitely going to uh, become easier for for me to sell as more and more people learned about it and uh, talk to people like yourself and, and others who were using it. Uh, but it was a slog. It was really hard because obviously $250,000 at that time in 1988 was, what is it now? I mean, that's a lot of money. And, yep. you know, I was, I started selling it when it was fairly new. And of course, capital budgets weren't in, you know, mm-hmm. plan, plan. So what company has 250 or more, $300,000 uh, available to spend for a new technology that has no, almost no history to it in terms of payback. Right. So companies like Apple, 
uh, who were uh, of a different point of view about it, uh, believing that it had capability. I think Kodak was a very early one too. Uh, right. Very big companies with very deep pockets who did a lot of R&D and, and had a history of, of buying something to see what the value might be in it. Mm -hmm. Companies were there, but I, I didn't find a lot of those companies. Um, so it was, it was a slog. It was very challenging. And, and as you said, com compounded by the fact that the materials were really poor in, in hindsight and, mm -hmm. uh, and such. Yeah. But little by little, it got easier uh, as, as more and more people, uh, more and more press and more and more stories came out about companies that were using it successfully. And as more and more people use service bureaus and it started to travel uh, and, and gain faith in the organization. One of the hardest, one of the hardest challenges I ever faced in selling a system was, I, I, don't, I think it's okay to say it, U.S. Surgical, who mm -hmm. uh, I felt was, you know, U.S. Surgical was really in its prime when I started, uh, started interfacing with them. They were really on a tear because they had a technology that they had, they had created and, and they were making a lot of them and making a lot of money. And I mm -hmm. felt that um, my time was going to be very well spent there. And there was a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the engineers for the technology. But uh, um, when, when it gets to bubbling up to the top, you know, and getting capital budgets allocated and such like that, this is an example of one that was really uh, uh, a challenge because when I spoke to the VP of engineering at the time and I was describing to them the, the value of the technology, how it helps engineers mm -hmm. um, find possibly mistakes in their design, he said to me, I expect my engineers not to make mistakes. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that, that, that never I happens. No, I had no comeback for that. And it took seven years before U.S. Surgical finally did buy an SLA. Wow. And, uh, of course, you know, they, they've done very well with that technology and other technologies since then. But so it was, it was, um, there was a lot of resistance in terms of it's not a, not, not a familiar technology. It, it certainly never, it was so far from being what it is now, which is an essential technology for engineering. Who was the first competitor that came along to 3D Systems? Was that Stratasys? Uh, Stratasys, I think, was about at the same time. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, um, the company that started uh, the SLS technology, I'm trying to remember now. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Was it, was the, it the lasers. DTM? DTM, yeah. In Texas, yeah. So they were, uh, they were out maybe, of the maybe, actually, can you describe just generically, I think most folks know how 3D printing works, but the difference between the SLA and the SLS, which was DTM, and SLS stands for Selective Laser Centering, and maybe the, the sure. FDM fused de definition, deposition modeling. Sure. Yeah. So there's, there's those three uh, basic technologies. There's the powder-based, the liquid-based, and the filament-based. So the mm -hmm. filament-based is the one that I think most people are personally familiar with, with MakerBots and, and all, the, all the variations of that that are now available where you basically have, a, it's, it's a glue gun, sort of, uh, right. where you, you pass a filament, uh, a weed whacker string. A lot of people say pass a weed whacker string, weed whacker string through a, a glue gun and then you move that glue gun around so that's basically it's a very simple process and uh that's been uh, that's been around since pretty much the time sla started as well uh sla um 
is uh, photocurable material, uh, photocured uh, with a pinpoint or a spot of light on the surface of a vat of liquid. And that, uh, that's usually supplied, uh, supplied by a laser, which dances around very quickly. So when you say photocured, it means that it turns from a liquid to a solid when it's exposed to a certain frequency of light. Exactly. That's and that exactly. laser gives it that. Yeah. The laser gives it that. And, um, and then the SLS technology, and all of these, of course, are layers. Uh, the SLS technology is uh, using a, a powder, a powder of a nylon, for example, mm -hmm. which is uh, also uh, subjected to a laser. But in this case, the laser is a very high, intense laser, high intensity laser, which supplies a tremendous amount of heat in that pinpoint of light that's hitting the surface of the powder. So the powder literally melts and it pools. And as that laser travels around, it leaves a, a pool of uh, molten uh, liquid, but it quickly uh, cools and solidifies. So you get a solid uh, trail. And uh, mm -hmm. little by little, um, that, uh, that layer is created. And then more in each of these, uh, another layer, in this case, powder is distributed over the previous layer of powder. In SLA, more liquid is distributed over the previous layer of liquid. How about tolerances? How have the tolerances improved from the first machines? Oh, they're about the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it's crazy how, how good they are. Um, I mean, I see parts now that I just can't believe. Um, I just can't believe they're 3D printed. Mm -hmm. uh, we, 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 uh, Interpro has... Um, our, our technology uh, foundation is still very much SLA, but we also have, uh, we have Origin uh, 3D printer in-house mm -hmm. now, uh, which is a DLP similar to a, um, a Formlabs, I think is a Formlabs, uh, might be yeah. a DLP as well. But uh, the, the, the parts that I'm seeing coming off of this particular technology and, and the latest SLA technology, uh, the tolerance uh, and the feature definition are, are outstanding. Uh, sometimes it's really hard to look at them and believe that they're a 3d printed part. Yeah. So, and that, that's, that's of course, because the, the, the hardware and the software have evolved so, so far, but also the materials have evolved so, so far. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, you have lived through the different names that this technology, we refer to it now as 3d printing, but, that's a relatively new way of describing it. And I, I know that we've, we've called it additive manufacturing. Uh, SLA was sort of a generic name for anything that was made, but what, what other names were there and why do you think 3D printing is stuck? That's a good question. Um, I think it makes sense. I'm not sure I ever really thought about that. Um, it seems like just an obvious thing to call it. Yeah. Yeah, stereolithic. Fortunately, we don't have to say stereolithic <laughs> anymore. Right. I was glad when that kind of went away. And the phrase a, a service bureau has gone away too. We, but that was pretty common in the 90s that you wanted to get a SLA part or any of the technologies you from buy a part, you went to a service bureau. Sure. And that sort of moved away, I think, in the 2000s. And not, but I, I thought it was actually a pretty good description of, of what we did. Yeah. 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 I still hear the term a lot. I do you still hear the term a lot? I do, yeah. Hmm. hmm. I, 
be interested in getting your perspective on, I, I have my opinion, but 3D Systems bought up a lot of the service bureaus, a lot of the independent shops making parts, and particularly the larger ones across the country. And they had the, at least the idea or concept that they were gonna be a real big part making company. How do you, how do you think that played out? Why don't you think it worked? And what do you think the impact was on the industry? Well, I do have some, some feelings and thoughts about that. Um, when, uh, as a service bureau owner, when that was yeah. going on, uh, yeah. that was a rather crazy time. And uh, the, uh, the price tags that 3D Systems was paying for these service bureaus was off the charts crazy. Right. It, it just didn't make sense not to sell your business to them. Right. And I, I just kept waiting for a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I never got a phone call. And, you know, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for. Because um, not, not a lot of good has come out, out of that, in, in my opinion, uh, in terms of the, um, I'll, I'll, I'll use the word decimation. The decimation. Uh -huh of some very good, very good companies. Uh -huh. um, I hesitate to name them because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but um, some very good companies with very, very skilled and hardworking employees. Well, I mean, we're just blown apart by this. And the, yes. you know, the, the stories of how uh, specifically 3D systems would take ownership of a company and then just put the thumb down on it and make and force them to uh, radically increase prices. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, hold them responsible for profit uh, objectives that the owners had signed up for. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've heard some really appalling stories, really good service bureaus that you and I both know of having had terrible fates and just disappearing. Yeah, they essentially they disappeared. And, yeah. and beyond what you just described, our 3D system sort of arbitrarily decided that certain service bureaus would focus on certain things. So they just closed down part of it. And what I saw was the revenue from the service bureaus that they bought. They, every single one decreased dramatically until from a sh stock point of view, shareholder point of view, they, it didn't make sense for the company to be making parts anymore. And they just shut it all down. So they spent, uh, well into the nine figures and took out how, probably a dozen or so of the, the leading service bureaus in the country. I'll tell you a story. Uh, when I was traveling a lot, when I was at 3D Systems, I covered down through the South and, and, mm -hmm. places. and one day I was in, in, I think South Carolina and I, I was uh, meeting with our, our local uh, rep down there, a gentleman by the name of Tom Clouser. Mm -hmm. He said something that always stuck in my, always stuck in my mind. He said, Kevin, he said, every business is a people business. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that um, getting back to what we're talking about, the, the companies that grew like DPT mm -hmm. and uh, Laser Fair and, mm -hmm. uh, and Psycam, who still is in operation and doing very well. These are all companies that are founded by individuals and, mm -hmm. and um, that, um, we're able to, to I, I'd, I'd say, appeal to people, uh, engineers particularly, 
on a one-to-one level uh, and to be problem solvers and to go out of their way to, to help. I mean, when, mm-hmm. you're a, when you're a family startup, especially when you're a family company, you do everything you can. It's within yeah. your power to satisfy that customer. And you're sensitive to the customer's needs and you have mm-hmm. to look, and especially price, but delivery and all these other things. When a corporation takes over, it, it's, it, that disappears in, in, in many of these circumstances. And to have, uh, to have you know, a corporation such as 3D Systems pushing down from the top to meet certain sales objectives, et cetera, um, the, the, essence, the, the essence of the people relationship with customers had to disappear in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in cases that I'm familiar with. I'm also going to throw out, Kevin, that I think that innovation occurs in the smaller shops as well. And the story you told about the ventilator adapter is a, a huge one that as a owner of a small business, you have the freedom to do that. And there is, there is I, I remember because I was very familiar with a lot of the service bureaus. There's a ton of innovation because the service bureaus had to figure out ways that potential customers could use their services. So they were inventing uses and documenting those for customers and really pushing the industry forward. And so here's my opinion that it doesn't get heard a lot, I don't think, but 3D systems is often lauded as the company that that created the 3D printing industry. But I think in the 2000s, with them buying all the service bureaus, they set back 3D printing by five to 10 years because they took all that innovation of 3D printing out of the system. And they, they, yes, did a lot of things that pushed the industry forward, but they do have a lot of responsibility for essentially stagnating the industry for a number of years. And, and not just the 3D printing industry. I remember in the scanning industry, which you're familiar with as well, there were some key software uh, tools that are used by the scanning companies and they essentially bought up these, these companies. They brought them together so now there's no competition between companies to make their products better. And they shut down the innovation for scanning as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think 3D Systems really needs to get called for their legacy uh, in, in doing these things. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I know that we're talking in a way that might be edited out, frankly. But, you know, I, you know I, I, I'm sure you do too, but I have, uh, I've heard a ton of stories about uh, the quality of the equipment that they were shipping. And, and uh, when you ship a piece of uh, junk mm-hmm. that's not tested and it's not manufactured right mm-hmm. to a, a, a small business, and that small business is uh, very, very painfully badly impacted by the lack of performance of that machine, that's um, it's not a good thing. I totally agree, and I think that the irresponsibility and I'm going to use that word and and I don't think we will edit this out Kevin because I uh, have sold my my company I'm not beholden to anyone and I really want to not have mistakes like this made again 3D systems bought other 
3D printing companies and whether it was intentional or just bad management, they took these wonderful companies and I'll say specifically Z Corp is one that you and I both know pretty well. And they essentially that company evaporated and there are specific stories where they did not support the customers after the sale in a very good fashion. And all these things really stagnated the, the 3D printing industry for quite a while. And I think as a leader in an industry, whether it's 3D printing or anything else, you have a responsibility. So that's a get off my soapbox now, but. Uh, well, that's, that's part of the reason that I left 3D systems when I did, because um, uh, after, after six or well, after six or so years and, and momentum was growing and I was having a reasonable success as a salesperson, mm-hmm. um, it, it still, it was a very challenging situation to be in. And, and my fellow salespeople from uh, around the country, you know, mm-hmm. all of them really hard working people. Yeah, a lot, of, um, a lot of the service bureaus were started by ex-3D system salespeople, weren't they? I think so. I yeah. think so. Well, well tell but, me uh, a little bit about Interpro. Tell me about that how you did get started well um well um i i was i was starting to say that i was really i i, w- I was looking at the success that people um who had started companies were having i mean um it was um there was a growing number of companies that uh, mm-hmm. were startups that were doing very well and in my particular situation i um i thought how could i do that but um i didn't have the wherewithal capital wise i didn't have any I, I didn't try to find any equity partners to go in and i i thought well maybe that ship will never sail for mm. me but uh one day uh changed my life i got a call from bill soares at uh, swarovski jewelry who i had sold an sla to swarovski mm. bought an sla 250 with the idea that uh they could uh, 3d print prototypes of jewelry mm-hmm. and um they, um, I forget the CAD package that they bought with it, but it was a very, very expensive and very, very difficult to use CAD package. And their, their designers who had always designed just on, on paper were being asked to learn CAD and to, <laughs> and to 3D print. And yeah. it, was, it was not a good, good idea. It was a non-starter. So the SLA um, was turned off before very long. Mm-hmm. And I got a call one day that uh, they were looking to find a home for it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what changed my life right there. Um, hmm. I had, uh, I had a 401k. I liquidated it. I bought that machine. And I, wow. I, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that you, you took your, essentially your retirement savings then. Yeah. 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 And I, uh, I, uh, I bought that and I, I parked it in a, a rented space that I had. Mm-hmm. And um, th- then it's like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one of the happiest moments of my life was when I get that machine turned on and it actually started going up and down. I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was a kid at Christmas. It's, it works. So, uh, but uh, I didn't, I didn't have a business plan. So um, I set about for the next year or so putting, putting a business plan together and mm-hmm. uh, was able to, uh, at about the same time, miraculously uh, Loctite, who at the time was a supplier of 3d printing resins for SLA. Uh, it became known to me that Loctite was getting out of the industry. Mm. 
by SLA resins. And, and therefore, their SLA, which they had in their Connecticut location, was no longer going to be of any use to them. So gotcha. I, I made phone calls, and I was able to secure that machine. I bought that machine, too. So I had two SLAs. Mm -hmm. And I put my business plan together and uh, got some funding. Um, I was able to um, uh, get um, the bank looked at the value of the SLAs as my equity. Mm -hmm. And um, I announced to 3D Systems that I was going to be going out on my own. And uh, to my great surprise, um, they offered, um, and you'll appreciate this, they, they offered that I could become a reseller for the actual Oh, the actual, yeah. Yep. So, uh, and I think you were a reseller for the Thermojet or actual? The, yeah, well, the actual became the Thermojet, right? Thermojet, right, right. Yeah. So, so that, that to me was um, just an absolute uh, wonderful uh, occurrence because that machine was starting to really uh, get traction. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got operational, um, we, sh we shot up to almost $2 million in sales in two years. Wow, that that was the that was a blessing for me. Huh. And of course, when 3D Systems decided to end all reseller relationships, that was a very bad day for me. Yeah. So yeah. you started in it was 1996. Um, I think it was yeah 96, 97. I think maybe 97, 98 time frame I got started. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we had and we had the one actual and just for the listeners, the actual in Thermojet was a more of a desktop i wouldn't say desktop but more of a large plotter like an hp plotter size printer and the material was wax so it was really good for metal castings at least that's what i found yeah. inkjet yeah. inkjet yeah. Ink, yeah that's right inkjet technology yeah. and it worked great and it made really nice parts and it was yeah. easy to run <laughs> yep. So, um, yeah, we started with one SLA, uh, and then the second one got turned down, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, that's how we got going. I want to get into how you evolve with the printers and the different printers you use, but before that, we're facing a what I think is going to be a tough business climate after this is all said and done, and you went through 9-11, which for me, the, the two years after that were just brutal in a parts-making business. 2009 certainly wasn't much fun. Why do you think you survived and you're still th not just surviving, you're thriving now? I'll, I, I consider myself very lucky. You know, really. Well, I think you must have created your own luck, Kevin. <laughs> uh, long hours. Yeah. Long hours. Um, Having to, uh, of course, I mean, you, you know, well, payroll had to be reduced severely. Mm -hmm. um, and um, hours, of, you just had to do everything you possibly could. And, you know, there were, there were times that I was, you know, making prayers to God to just, you know, help, help this SLA not crash tonight. Because I yeah. had to go to that park tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, so um, a lot of late nights, a lot of late nights. And, um, you yeah. know. And that you just made a comment that I think is really relevant because the printers are so much more reliable today, but they did used to crash. They crashed, crashed a lot. <laughs> they crashed a lot. 
And you yeah. see, part of my challenge is that I, I'm not a mechanical engineer and I, I, I'm not a designer either. So I was, you know, I was pretty much out of my element in terms of the things that I put myself in the middle of. And, um, you know, I've, would I do it again? I, I'd say I would do it again now knowing what I, what I know now, which is that it's possible to do it. But if I had my druthers, I would have done it with, uh, with, with some other uh, members of, of my team that had uh, the background, certainly like you had, you know, mechanical. Yeah. Well, I think I'm more along your lines as I can tell you why it doesn't work, but I can't fix it. So <laughs> you, so you started with the two SLAs you were probably using, selling parts off of the actual thermojet. What technologies did you bring in house next? How did that sort of path in, in bringing services in-house, and, and, and what are you the services you do today? Sure. Um, well, one of the technologies that I also uh, – I, I, um, I had talked to Michael Center, who was the U.S. rep for Camatini, about the technology that they were marketing at the time, which was, if you remember it, it was a, um, a cast urethane system mm -hmm. yep. that was uh, almost self-contained. And uh, he demonstrated it at trade shows with, uh, with, with enormous results. I mean, beautiful parts being made right at the trade show. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a nice, nice compact system. And I thought uh, uh, it would complement the, the sale of uh, parts, but also the sale of the uh, actual thermoset, uh, thermojet as well. So mm -hmm. we became a reseller for that. And by doing that, um, we got directly involved with making uh, cast urethane parts. Could you just tell the listeners what cast urethane parts are, how sure. that process works? So it involves um, uh, plastics where you mix the A and the B um, and the catalyze and it becomes solid. Mm -hmm. And um, in, um, in a cast urethane process, um, you, um, you're putting those typically into a rubber mold. And the rubber mold is usually uh, made of some, some type of silicone rubber. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to create that silicone mold, uh, there's a reasonable amount of skill involved with making mm -hmm. that. Oh, yeah. But, but in the case of using SLA, the process is to, to build the pattern of what you finally want to produce, put it in a box, pour liquid silicone over it, let it cure. Mm -hmm. Next day, you come back, you take the box off of it, you cut it open at the parting line, you take out your SLA part, you pop your mold back together, and into that mold, you pour your two-part urethane. You mix your A and your B, you pour it in, and in a short amount of time, typically, it solidifies, you pop open your mold, and there you have a perfect replica of your original SLA pattern. Why wouldn't you just make, say, a dozen SLAs instead of making one SLA and then a dozen urethane castings? Uh, sometimes it would be a lot faster. It's often a lot faster just to make a dozen SLAs than mm. to do it uh, by casting it. But then you get into the material properties. So if the material, if, if for the application, the material wants to be slightly uh, flexible or very, mm -hmm. very flexible or very, very rugged and will take impact if you throw it against a wall, it won't break. Mm -hmm. that, that's the key right there. You're able to use the SLA uh, to get to a much more uh, interesting engineering type of material property. Gotcha. And the silicone molding that you do, do you use rubber molds for that? 
Typically we do. Once in a while, once in a great while, we'll machine a mold uh, mm -hmm. if it has extremely tight tolerances or details. But um, we've had very good success with 3D printing the molds as well on SLA. Oh, really? Yeah. I know that's always was a holy grail for 3D printing is making tooling is where, where's that stand in the industry now in making a, a mold like that? What do you have to do a lot of post-processing or for the cast, for the casting of a urethane for the uh, mold before you can pour material into it? Um, well, again, back to the quality of the SLAs now with the, with the technologies that are available and the materials that are available, uh, mm -hmm. they lend themselves very well to this, especially for, uh, especially for a silicone part, which, mm -hmm. um, if you're, excuse me, if you're casting a, a flexible part, um, there's much less risk of it breaking the SLA when you pull it out of the SLA mold. If it's a, if you're casting a very rugged stiff part, then your chance of breaking the SLA mold is, is much higher. Okay. So we can do quick turn. We can, we can design a mold. For example, um, we use space claim as well, uh, as oh. solid interpro and space claim has been a tool for us. That's really, uh, helped us to, uh, especially to do that, to be able to take the CAD file and to, uh, to design up a 3d printed mold that will 3d print. We can print it that night and the next day be casting parts and shipping them in extraordinarily really? circumstances. We can do that. It's not something wow. we do every day, but it's within our wheelhouse to do that. Yeah. Yeah. On your website, you also say you do custom finishing. What does custom finishing mean in a, and I'm going to use the term model shop because you guys do produce models. So um, when the parts come out of an SLA or an SLS machine or any other 3D printed part, uh, they are what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the client is looking for something that closely closely resembles what the actual finished product is going to look like when it's on the market. Mm -hmm. uh, if they want to take this idea and go up to their board of directors or mm -hmm. go to the client, if they want to go to Walmart and say, this is what we are proposing. It mm -hmm. has to look, it has to look uh, as close as possible to the real actual finished product. So that's the skill set we have. We have some really, really excellent uh, uh, people on our team that do this and have decades of experience doing high quality finishing to parts. It's, it's all hand, it's all hand finishing. Uh, finishing the part to bring it up to a level and painting it and putting the right textures on it. And if it's got a elastomeric grip, adding a little bit of a cast urethane or cast silicone mm. to complement it so that a lot, a lot of time it's beyond the, I guess the finishing, even it's the assembly of different types right. of components made from different materials and processes. We had the opportunity to do some work recently, which uh, involves uh mission to Mars and to the moon and it involves, it involves some, some, um, some hardware related to the astronauts, which huh. uh, we, um, we can't really talk about too much, but um, some examples of our work are in uh, air and space magazine. Uh, really? It having, it having been shown down in, uh, in the Capitol Rotunda, but it's the best project and the most exciting project we've ever worked on as a team. It was an amazing mm -hmm. team effort to, to create these, um, um, devices, which uh, are pretty much, I mean, if you would look at it, you would think it was the actual, the actual component made of aluminum and, and other stuff. Yeah. And that's, and that's the goal is you can't distinguish it from, 
from the actual production parts. Exactly. That's it exactly. You, you mentioned CNC machining, so you, you've got that, but I'm really curious, how many printers do you have in-house now that are making parts for customers, and what technologies are you using? Because one of the th things that I see, just because of your decades of experience, but as well as the people and the technologies you have in-house is you truly have the right tool for the the right job the the right application you're not a uh, hammer looking for nails so w tell me a little bit more about the the printers and and, and why sure. each, each one exists well, uh, we started with stereolithography, and that's still a very strong capability of ours. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we still have 3D Systems SLA operational, but mm -hmm. over the past, past few years, we've been uh, investing in uh, Union Tech uh, mm -hmm. SLAs. Um, these are very large. I think the envelope is 32 by 32 in X and Y, so we can make very large, wow. and they're incredibly accurate. And so we're running... Um, we're running three different materials in those three different machines, and we're also running um, in our SLA machine from 3D Systems. We're running a Somos Perform, which is a ceramic uh, material, which is ceramic. Uh, ceramic, huh. so it's very, very high heat uh, resistant, and it's not mm -hmm. a general. It's not a general usage material because it's quite brittle, mm -hmm. but for certain applications, it's effective. So we have four SLAs. We have two uh, Markforge systems. Mm -hmm. which are, those are Apple technologies, um, and that's an FDM process. Of course, and that has uh, the option to have the fiberglass infill uh, to make mm. it, or, or carbon fiber infill to make them incredibly strong. Great technology. We have a Fortis. Um, we print ABS on that and occasionally polycarbonate on that, a Fortis 400. And um, the Fortis is a, I just want to, yeah. Fortis is an FDM, the glue gun right. type machine. Yep. That's but right. very, yeah, but very accurate. Glue gun doesn't doesn't really yeah. give credit to how accurate these types of parts are that's and right. how strong they are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really an excellent machine. The Fortis is an excellent machine. Uh, we also have um, we have a Form Labs, which occasionally we use for for some interesting small work. But uh, we're really excited about the Origin. Well, uh, we we have uh, we have two HP Jet Fusion machines. We're an HP reseller. We have mm -hmm. a 580, which is the color machine, and we have the 4200 which uh, is the larger machine, the original machine that HP brought out about three years ago now. Okay. When I was at Rapid, when I was at Rapid about three years ago and I saw that running for the first time, I, I just knew absolutely that that's a technology that we had to have. If we're well, I wanna come back to that, but you, you mentioned the origin as well. Yeah, so the origin is a fairly new technology. It's a DLP. And what we're excited about is the, the material properties properties that are available for it now, but the uh, material properties that are coming, including uh, FST, uh, flame and smoke uh, FST. I'm forgetting what the FST means, but basically okay. means aerospace can use it. Uh, you can put it on an airplane and it won't, it won't create toxic smoke if it's mm -hmm. subjected to heat. It won't burn and it won't. So this is a production smoke. part application. Absolutely. Huh. And uh, so, that would be groundbreaking to have a 3D printer, especially one that creates such incredibly highly accurate and highly detailed parts. I think, we think that this is going to be really transformational in our business. So we're standing ready to, and we have one machine, we have another one coming. We, we're ready to invest in, in, in How much do those machines cost? 
Well, um, they have an interesting price model, which uh, actually I'm not even capable of commenting on, not because I'm being coy, but because I don't really understand it. And that's something I'd have to refer back to Dan Straka. He, we, have, um, we have interesting conversations about that. And, and I really, I don't even want to pretend to understand okay. uh, how that's priced. But I think it's kind of a, a, a work in process in terms of how they're pricing their technology. As it's a brand new technology and uh, they're just getting their initial machines out the door. But we were fortunate in that we're able to um, build a relationship with them early on. And especially we're fortunate in that uh, Loctite is supplying materials for that technology. And we've been able to build a very good, strong cooperative relationship with Loctite, um, a partnership mm. sort of level uh, relationship. So with Loctite materials and uh, the origin, we see in that particular technology, a very, very bright future for all involved. But it's that, That's what I love about this is the, the, strides forward are not stopping people are saying when will 3d printed parts be the norm and, and it's not going to be overnight you're not going to flip a switch but these are the incremental steps that are how we can rethink how parts are made and so that brings me back to the hp and i've seen the parts off of the hp printers and they're fantastic they look and perform like injection molded parts. And in fact, I was at a, I'll use the term service bureau in Phoenix a couple months ago, and their whole business is primarily working with injection molders who have orders for parts, but their tools are delayed or haven't arrived yet. And they are doing the part making for injection molders in the interim. Again, HP, they, they took a long time coming to market, but super product. Why are you not only using the technology, but why are you a reseller for HP? And who are the sort of people who are buying the HP printers? When, uh, when I first saw the HP um, at Rapid a couple of years ago, I, like I was saying, I knew we had to have that as a, mm -hmm. as a capability at Interpro, but literally that same day as I'm standing in line to um, put my order down, I'm listening to them talk about setting up the reseller channel. And, and mm. I, I said, I'd like to have that conversation with you because at the time we were also a reseller for Mark Forged. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, we, we have, we have the infrastructure of already of a sales organization for selling 3d printers. This would be a natural and the technology was so exciting. Mm -hmm. I, I really want to be really involved <laughs> with this technology. So, and my, my feeling has been all along, people have said like, you're a service bureau, but you're selling the machine too. Uh, does that make sense? And I, my own personal feeling is that buy from a man who owns one. Mm -hmm. so I, I, I run my business with it and I'm comfortable being able to say to another person, this machine would help your business as well as it's helped mine. Well, without naming any customers, and you're welcome to name them if you want, but who are the types of customers who are buying the HP printers and how are they using them? Um, of course, the price tag is, is fairly high, um, mm -hmm. especially on the first generation. So um, industrial clients, uh, I probably shouldn't name any names. Right. But of course, as you know, it's a whole 
a whole range of different technologies in terms of the industries that they're in. And, and if a company is making, if a company is making parts that are going to be 3D, uh, sorry, injection molded, um, the, as you said, the, the fit on these parts, the, the functional fu the functionality of them, mm -hmm. uh, the tolerances, it's just, it's really radically, radically improving the level of 3D printing and what engineers can do with them. And to your point earlier, uh, I was talking to an injection molder the other day, and he's a, he's a person who years, for years has looked at 3D printing tooling. Mm -hmm. We've worked with him on it. And he said to me the other day, he said, you know, Kevin, I think we're now at the point where um, he said, I really think it's, it's that ship sailed. Mm. Uh, sailed. It's now going to be that just, just as you just said, we're, we're now able to 3D print those initial quantities. Or if the quantity doesn't have to be tens of thousands, we can just 3D print the whole run. Are the customers who are buying the printers, are some of them printing parts that are used that are sold as production parts are being used as production parts in their products and i'm trying to get a sense of has this really made the jump to production or is it still just an interim step it's making the jump it's yeah making the jump and, and as you know sometimes you can look at an hp jet fusion part and you would not know that it's <laughs> right yeah. right Real quickly, do you have any 3D printers that are doing metal in-house? No. Why not? We, we came close to doing that a couple of years ago. I felt I was feeling scared that if we don't do that, we're going to be you know, really left behind. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, my, uh, my, my friend, uh, Bob Belisle, who used to run the Pratt & Whitney Lab, who was advising me at the time, um, mm -hmm. cautioned, cautioned me that this is a really fast moving field mm -hmm. uh, and that um, you, 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 choose a, you choose a horse, so to speak, and you better mm -hmm. hope that you choose the right one. But really, I think practically speaking, the biggest reason I haven't done it is because the level of expense to not just buy the machine, but the whole infrastructure yeah. and, the, and the skill and the technology mm -hmm. and the experience to run that right, um, it, um, it's not a it's a it's a huge investment for for a small company yeah. exactly so we are a small company yeah. yep. one of the ways that we reconnected in the last couple of years is that you chose paperless parts for your estimating software you were one of our first customers around two years ago i think you, you started using it what yep. problem did paperless parts start for you solve for uh, you Quite a few, quite a few. Um, in, in Dan Straka's uh, words, uh, it's removed a lot of the friction involved with our interaction with clients. Um, mm. We, like many people, uh, evolved from using Excel to be able to calculate input mm -hmm. parameters, X, Y, Z, uh, and derive that uh, calculated amount, copy, paste. Uh, so we, we've gone from what was a very manual process, which was not a consistent process, quarter to quarter, person to person. And we've been able to, um, we've been able to streamline the experience for the customer in this mm -hmm. very professional uh, in interface that's there. Mm -hmm. The customer is able to easily, quickly upload, um, set uh, 
uh, set uh, decisions for what they're looking for. It comes to us. We not we're not dealing with email. We, we click right. the link. It comes right down, which is which is wonderful. All all of our uh, quoters can pull that same file down and look at it simultaneously. So we can have group discussions about this, this, this. We can confer about it. Um, we we have within the system um, as we've tailored it all of our calculations for how we quote and the values mm -hmm. associated with with tasks and with materials and stuff like that. So we're able to just click a few buttons, get the quote generated, uh, deliver it back to the client um, in what was what used to be roughly a half an hour per quote is down to about seven minutes per quote now. Mm. So we've been able to, and, and as our RFQ rate has increased as our, our as our company's mm -hmm. business has grown, we've been able to increase um, the number of RFQs that we can produce in less time without having to hire an additional uh, quarter. So it's, it's been, it's been a great experience for us and continues to be. Excellent. Uh, very, very, it's a, it's a very, very uh, wonderful thing for us. For years, we struggled with how to be able to handle this quote process and do it differently. We looked at a lot of different other options over the years and mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was painful, but now, a lot, almost all of the pain of quoting is, is, is gone. So along those lines, thank you very much. That, that, that's wonderful explanation of, of how it's worked for your shop. What would you say to a shop owner, whether they are doing 3D printing or perhaps just machining or sheet metal, and they're thinking about automating and estimating, what would you say to them in terms of how to look at something like this? I would, based on our experience, I, I would say you should definitely, definitely look at it. And why wouldn't you, if, if it's going to save, if it's going to make you, uh, at least in terms of the customer perception, much more professional looking, mm -hmm. if it's going to make the customer's, uh, interaction with your company easier, um, more enjoyable, um, more rich in terms of the information that gets communicated and the yeah. ease of communication. Uh, and if it's all, and if it's only going to cost you a small incremental cost, that cost that is there to utilize the paperless part system is more than made up for by the uh, increase in in business that we've done, and the increase uh, of uh, the quality of our lives. Let's put it that way, and our confidence, our confidence that we're not making mistakes, and that that's a big deal. You know, mm. the 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 potential to make mistakes. Um, uh, in our quoting process and in our production process mm -hmm. uh, has been really distilled to a very, very low um, potential to make mistakes. Well, thanks for sharing that, Kevin. Makes me think you've got a lot of experience, which we just talked about in 3D printing. So posing the same type of question, a job shop owner who is looking to getting into 3D printing, but not sure where to start, whether he should buy a printer or buy parts from someone like you. What, what would you say to somebody who just doesn't have a lot of familiarity? Let's say they're a machine shop owner. What's your suggestion, your, your advice to them? Well, the... The simplicity with which these are operated now, the machines are so simple to operate. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, uh, 
investment cost is is so reasonably low now to just mm-hmm. start um, that that particular business within your business. Um, if you already have the customers anyway, and if you assume that if you're a machine shop, for example, if you assume that all of your customers are using 3D printing anyway from other mm. sources, which might be a pretty good assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then why not? It, it, and manpower-wise, there's, there's, it's almost uh, very, very little incremental manpower involved with uh, operating these incredible. What I've different- seen is you get one of your Generation X team members to just say, figure this out, and they, they jump yeah. on it and they love it. What else should we share with job shop owners, perhaps, that we haven't talked about so far? Is there anything we've missed, Kevin? I think that um, just to share my own perspective, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the uh, 3D printing has really changed the world. It really has. And I, I don't think we've plateaued. And uh, I think that this, if it's a curve, I don't know if it's a hockey stick curve, but it's. I think that the slope is, is a very positive slope in terms of the rate of um, – how it's um, how it's going to continue to make lives better, how it's going to continue to make the world better, uh, make businesses healthier and uh, help um, basically help the world. And I, 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 I think that uh, there's no wrong time to get on, to, to get on board with that. There's no wrong time. It's not too late mm-hmm. to, and, and, and I think that if you're not doing it, you better really just get your feet wet with it. Find and- out. And those, and getting your feet wet doesn't have to be expensive. The Form Labs printers, some of the FDM printers out there, they're a few thousand dollars. It's not going to break the bank if it doesn't work and essentially you throw it away after a year. That's true. What do they say out in Silicon Valley? Fail fast. Fast. Yeah. Well, this has been a real trip down memory lane, Kevin. So thanks so much. Many people don't realize how long 3D printing has been around and how dramatically the parts have changed over the years, the materials, the process. It's been definitely quite a journey and I appreciate you helping document it for the listeners. And the story about the ventilator adapter, that's so inspiring. It shows that each of us can do a small piece in this battle that you just got to take initiative. So thank you so much for sharing and thank being you. on today. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah. Where can people find you and Interpro? What's Interpro's website? Interpromodels.com, all one word. And uh, my, uh, my contact information's on there as well. Great. But my, my email is uh, Kevin at Interpromodels.com. Well, if you have a question as a job shop owner, is it okay to contact you? Absolutely, sure. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. And you, the listener, thank you for tuning in and sharing your day with us. We want the podcast to provide you with relevant, actionable information. So if you have any suggestions or comments, please email us through the website, thejobshopshow.com. And also, we would appreciate you sharing the podcast with others. And of course, leaving a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. And now, time to get back to making sure those spindles are turning, those lasers are cutting, 
and those 3D printers are printing. Have a super day.